Okay, there's the sacred reading for this morning. I sort of apologize for doing that to you, but I also sort of don't apologize for doing that to you. It's summer, it's relaxed. So last winter, some of you may remember, I was on sabbatical, and one of the things that I did while I was on sabbatical is I walked 500 miles in 33 days from a tiny little village in Western France all the way to the west coast of Spain along this route called the Camino de Santiago. I'm not special. People have been walking the Camino for more than a thousand years. The earliest pilgrims, if you read about it, they did it for religion, period. That was the only reason they did it. And today's pilgrims, they do it for all sorts of reasons. They do it, uh, the people that I met, they said they were doing it to lose weight, they were doing it to eat and drink, uh, to meet people, to kick bad habits, the list of things that people were doing on this walk was just almost endless. And as I might have shared before, I walked it for reasons that were sort of equal personal and equal religious. And I was really serious about taking this walk, and so for months on end as I was getting ready for it, I would obsess over the details. I would, I would obsess about what I would eat and what I would drink. I would obsess about how much sleep I'd get. I'd obsess about how much I'd pray and where I'd go to church how much conversation I let myself have with other people. I did all this because part of me thought that the experience could somehow purge from my personality a few of my base tendencies. I don't have many, but the few that I have left, I was hoping to purge them. I sort of had dreamed that by walking it, I could emerge this magnanimous person, that you all would look at me and you'd go, man, that is one magnanimous guy. <laughs> I wanted to be more generous, and I wanted to be more forgiving, especially towards the people that I'm annoyed with. <laughs> so don't get me wrong, I knew, or at least a part of me knew, that there's no way a walk, even a 500-mile walk, can change me into an enlightened being. But a man can dream. <laughs> and so I'm in France, I'm all prayed up, I'm ready to go, I'm leaving this ancient medieval village. And it took like an hour into my walk for all of my careful planning to come crashing down around me. Before I say how, allow me to tell you a little bit about myself. There is no one you have met on planet Earth who is better than me at telling you all the ways that you're annoying. It is my superpower. Like, I can just look at a person driving a car and I'm like, I got the read on this person. I can solve them if they would pull over and hear what I have to say. But I don't want you to think you're special because I do this to myself too. Like, I think I'm also annoying. Anyways, I have a PhD in perfectionism. That is what my superpower is. Knowing this about myself is good. At least that's what my therapist tells me, that this is good. And wouldn't you know it, on the very first day of the walk, a Netherlander who was designed in a laboratory that makes androids whose objective is to annoy Brian Mason walked right alongside me. He was loud and he was obnoxious, and I'm not joking, he farted incessantly, just like all the time, unapologetically, as if I wasn't noticing that it was happening. Furthermore, by like 10 o'clock every morning, he would run out of water. And he'd be like, Brian, can I have a drink of your water? And I'd be like, no, you can't have a drink of my water. I gave him a drink of my water, but you ran out of water every day. 
By the way, he knew everything. He had been everywhere. He had eaten everywhere. He had read that book that I had read and 10 more that I needed to read besides. He also knew how to walk the Camino better than I did. He knew the rain jacket I should have got that was better than the one that I was wearing. Meeting this guy in my mind was sort of like a cosmic joke that I was the butt of. That's what it felt like. Worse, this guy just popped up like a zit. You never knew. You just woke up and there he would be on your face like on picture day at school. He was a total zit. All of my careful planning, all of my prayer and my hope for becoming this generous and forgiving person, it crashed and burned right in front of me and his name was George. It was all George's fault. The point of this, the point of this is that even on a spiritual journey, in a beautiful foreign land, on a pilgrimage that was supposed to be to the deepest parts of my heart and soul, I was still just plain old me, good and bad. And I'm not the only person who's come to this awareness. I met lots of other pilgrims who would say similar things as me. And not just pilgrims, I've got friends and family members who say that they stumbled on an awareness themselves in various ways. And I was reminded of, the, of this earlier in the summer when my wife and I were down south visiting friends. And we were reminiscing with some friends about the time before your first child arrives. I think if you remember, who have kids, remember that moment before the first child arrives. It's a ripe moment, isn't it? Anyways, so if you're anything like us, like me and my friends, you use or you use this pre-child period to sort of create a list of must-dos and must-don'ts. Just nod your head if you did this. Yeah, okay, I see some heads nodding, this is good. So our friend told us that when she was pregnant, one of the things that she promised to herself is she said, I will never repeat the sins of my mother. <laughs> and then she said, I promise I will never go ballistic and tear my kids off ever, I promise. And then the story continued. And what you know is, she tells us a couple of years later when her firstborn is two years old and she catches her son in the act of making a royal mess in the kitchen, what did my friend do? She went absolutely fifth level ballistic over a tiny little breach of the household rules. And so my friend and I, we talk back and forth about how when we catch ourselves in the act of breaking a commitment we've made, there's almost no end to the length that we will go to beat ourselves up we're breaking this promise we've made to ourselves. Like, I don't think anybody's a better critic of us, other than me, than you are for yourself. <laughs> On the one hand, these opportunities, they give us a chance to grow. I don't think we need to resist them always. We should sit in that yucky part for a minute and think if we can grow from it. And it's also important to work on self-control. Self-control is a gift. Sometimes the best thing is to do nothing, right? And it's important to listen to people so you learn when and how to apologize. And it's important to change when you or a benevolent force closes in on you and sort of demands it. It's time for you to change. But there's a but. What I'm about to say might sound like a contradiction, but it's not, I promise. So here it is. Who you are isn't fully up to you but you should live as though it is. I'm gonna make the point again. Who you are isn't fully up to you, but you should live as though it is. 
I'll explain. Everyone in this room, I venture to guess, has gone through things that have shaped us in ways that we wouldn't want if we had a choice. Some of us have gone through things that we would have rather not, even if on the other end it made us stronger or more compassionate. In some very important ways, we simply find ourselves being who we are. The fact is, none of us are omnipotent dictators. We don't get to call all the shots. We're also not rock. Because unlike rocks, we respond to the world in countless ways. And we're unique among the animals. We're not like dogs and cats and mice and tigers and so on. We get to choose how to respond when things happen. But most importantly, we, we get to consider how we ought to respond for much of our lives. The key word there is ought. Of course, there are restrictions to this. I don't think there's some universal perspective from everywhere. For instance, someone born in the 10th century before the Common Era, they couldn't have woken up one day wherever they lived and they decided today is the day I'm gonna go follow Jesus Christ or the Buddha, or I'm going to convert to secular humanism, and I'm going to become an effective altruist. Those choices weren't on the table. They weren't on the table because they didn't exist yet. The point of this is to say that even in a constrained form, the, re the responsibility to discern as best we can what kind of life is worth seeking is a question that has to be responded to now. You can't answer that question for someone else in another era. You answer that question always right now. Now, of course, I think that we can be a little bit lazy about this question, and I think that it's okay to be lazy about answering this question sometimes, or maybe even most of the time. Like, it would probably be uncomfortable to go through your entire life just feeling existential dread of what you should and shouldn't do, but I know some people do this. Because every once in a while, we just want a cheeseburger without having to wrestle with the ethics of eating meat or factory farming, right? It's okay to think about this sometimes and sometimes not. The point is the question, what kind of life is worth my seeking, is a question almost everyone has asked at some point or in some way. And if you haven't, I'd like to suggest that you change that. So a few weeks ago, three professors from Yale's Divinity School, they published a book on a course that they designed about a decade ago that's become one of the most popular courses taught at all of Yale, and now it's even popular beyond Yale. And so like the course, the book, or I'll tell you the title of the course, it's called Life Worth Living, sorry. So like the course, the book of the same title invites us to explore what it means to live a flourishing life by looking at a wide array of traditions. And so some of the traditions that you look at whenever you read this short, very zippy book, is you'll look at Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, expressive individualism, and it asks in all sorts of ways, the question. And it's called the question because there's no version that captures what it means entirely. And so here are a few ways that you might ask this question. What matters most? What is a good life? What is the shape of flourishing life? What kind of life is worthy of our humanity? What is true life? What is right and true and good? 
I offer you all these options because there's no one way to ask this question in the same way that there's no one way to answer the question. Because even when we think we get close to defining it, it's not uncommon for us to look around and find out that there's some other territory that we could explore if we wanted to. The writers of the book, they remind us that the question is about worth, value, good and bad and evil, meaning, purpose, finding names and ends, beauty, truth, justice. I love this part. What we owe one another, what the world is, and how we are to live in the world. It's also about the success of our lives, and it's also about the failure of our lives. And while it's true that there's no one way to ask the question and no one way to answer the question, what I do want to say is that there is your answer. There is my answer. In other words, what I'm saying is there is an answer. There's an answer because all of our lives, if you really think about it, they're judged in large and small ways. All kinds of things push in on our lives and judge us. Just think with me for a minute about all the things that are judging your life, whether you're aware of it or not. How many of you think that your parents might judge you a little bit? Yep. How many of you think that your children might be judging you a little bit? You don't have to raise your hands, but I love that some people are like, yeah. My kids hate me, or I don't know. How many of you think your teachers are judging you? There are some professors and teachers in this. Do you render a judgment upon your students' learning? Yes, you do. Your grandkids, the police will judge you if they pull you over. Your neighbor will judge you if you're bad at mowing your lawn. Your boss will judge you. Your friends will judge you. Your political party will judge you. The dude at the gym who saw how much you can really bench press, he judges you. Your church judges you. Your minister really judges you. Your God. I'm not, I'm not done with this. You're God. I'm going to end the sermon right after this list. I'm going to send you home. Your God judges you, and you judge you. If this weren't true, there would be no way for us to measure life's successes or failures. We have to have a place at which it stops, a place it starts and stops. We fit within these boundaries. This is a long way of saying that the stakes are always high, anytime we're talking about life. The stakes are high because by almost every account of human life, the message is clear. This is the one life you get. There isn't another one hanging in the back of the closet that you can just run through the wash and iron if this one gets ruined. This is it. Your life cannot be replaced. And if this is true, then to succeed or fail with respect to the whole of our lives is the weightiest thing we can do, or so the professors say. So in Life Worth Living, it's also noted how the question isn't scientific in the sense that science does not know how to ask what ought to be. That isn't the purview of science. Questions of ought have always been reserved for philosophy and theology and dining room tables. But I'm going to pause here for just a reality check. This question is huge. This question has the power to ruin your life. This question also has the power to change your life for the good. 
It's also a question, as I said, conditioned by time. You don't have what it takes to ask this question for someone in the eighth century because you've never been there and you never will. And asking it today comes with a unique set of challenges. For starters, I think one of the unique sets of challenges for us to answer this question today is that the wounds and the aches that we deal with here in the 21st century, no matter what TikTok influencers tell you, they cannot be life hacked away. The biggest changes that you make in your life are never quick and they're never easy. I say this because the aches of the world, the aches of the world in a time like ours, are never resolved slowly. Rather, they're resolved by changing our life, by sometimes becoming a radically different sort of person who belongs to a radically different sort of a community. And so I'm gonna tell you a quick story to guide us into the question I'm gonna leave you with for your week ahead. So the revelation that led to the creation of Islam, uh, when a man named Muhammad, it all started with Muhammad having dreams. And so first, Muhammad would have all of these dreams at nighttime, the convenient time to have dreams. And then the dreams started infecting his waking life. And all these dreams that he was plagued by were about what would come to pass for all of humankind. And so he kept having these dreams so often and so powerfully that he felt the need to leave his own home to be alone. And so he told his wife Khadija, he said, I have to leave. I'm having these dreams that are so powerful. I need to go into the wilderness and I need to pray. And so one day out there in the wilderness, an angel appeared to Muhammad and commanded Muhammad and said, recite. And like all prophets, if you read the story of all prophets, what did they do at first? They complain. They say, I don't want to change. You've got the wrong guy, you've got the wrong girl. So he complained and he complained and finally after a long time, he gave in. He recited. And he was totally overwhelmed in this moment. And what the angel said is recite in the name of thy Lord, thy Lord who, thy Lord who created man from a blood clot. And after this moment of revelation, he ran back to his wife, Khadija, and he was scared and he was doubting all of his life's purpose. He was doubting what was happening. He thought he was absolutely crazy. And he asked Khadija, he said, what is wrong with me? And she reassured him and she said, Muhammad, you're a good man. You're a good man. But of course, he was just distraught. And so she ran next door and grabbed Muhammad's cousin and said, come back. Muhammad is just at his wit's end. So his cousin came back and joined his wife and said, Muhammad, you're a good man. You're a good man. But the revelations would continue for the rest of his life. And the message was clear that he got from the angel. And the message was this, your life is not entirely your own. And so the Quran, the book we're told that comes from the divine encounters Muhammad had over a period of years, it contains a striking story about humankind's responsibility for taking the question seriously for taking our debt to creation and our debt to one another seriously. So the Quran says that at the very beginning when God created human beings, before any of us ever entered the world, God turned to those human beings and said, am I not your Lord? And he gave them the freedom to answer the question. And every single one of our celestial ancestors looked at God and they said, yes. 
you are the Lord. And so what did God do? God took note so that eventually, whenever humankind wanted to play dumb, God could say, nope, you told me. You told me from the beginning. You accepted responsibility. I can call you to account whenever you try to forsake what is rightfully your responsibility to do. To summarize it, the message went like this. We are accountable. We answer to people. That said, we aren't supreme beings with subjects to answer to us, but we are subject to others. We're also subject to our conscience. We're subject to that faint echo of what Muslims believe is our original commitment to God. And so deep down, this story gets us to wrestle with the possibility that all of us on some level, we know who we answer to. Of course, some of you are gonna say, Brian, I don't answer to God. I don't answer to any God for that matter. Some of you will say, I answer to my ancestors. You'll tell me that your parents and your grandparents, what they did is they instilled in you a sense of right and wrong that guides your life and your living. And I'm sure that both of those answers are true for some of you. But if it's true for you that you live according to your ancestors' wishes, I have a challenge for you this morning. If you're one of those people and someone then comes along and tells you that the root that was connected to their family has been severed at the vine, what do you say then? What do you have to say to someone whose root, whose family roots, is just filled with rot? The answer to those questions, what holds the social fabric together, what form of life is right, regardless of politics or prestige or personal finance, I'm in no way suggesting that these are easily answered. And so what the folks at Life Worth Living invite students, whether those students are in the ivory towers of Yale University, or there are other students who are serving life sentences in various prisons throughout Connecticut. What those professors invite their students to do is to answer this question. What if it were true? What if Christianity were true? And what it says about giving everything away, giving your home away, leaving your family, and serving the needs of the world to pray constantly. What if the Quran is true and you're supposed to submit your life to God in service and daily prayer and almsgiving? If these things became true for you, what in your life would have to change? How would your living have to change? Or what if the effective altruists are right that you read about that are so popular these days? What if they're right and in fact what you're supposed to do is give 90% of everything you've ever made and ever will make away? You charge yourself a 100% tax on everything you purchase. In whatever way works for you, I'm inviting you into the question, what if it were true? How would your life have to change? And so our ancestors here in this church, way back in 1858, they founded this church because they followed a God who told his disciples, leave your old way of life. Abandon your plows and your fishing nets and come and serve people and live lives of quiet devotion. And this ask that we turn 180 degrees and go in another direction is a mighty ask. It's mighty because in response to the call to live a life that isn't just our own, this is a big ask. 
And echoes of this ask, as we've seen, they're in Islam and in philosophy and other religions too. And that it's asked all over the world, in my opinion, it doesn't lessen its potency. If anything, that it's asked so often only makes it an even mightier ask. It's mighty because you are you and I am me. And you will always be you, your contradictory self, your occasional best self. And yes, you will always carry around a whole mess of contradictions, even whenever you're walking 500 miles trying to lose them. I tell you this from experience. But it's somewhere in this tension of what is and what ought to be that gets us closer to the possibility of helping us have the means meet the ends. And even if you never get it quite right, in the end, what matters is that you will have tried. And the life you lived while doing it, it will have been worth the living. Amen. Everyone's invited.